Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over and start using it now. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, guys. Welcome back. Episode 30. 30. We turned 30. Yeah, Steph Curry with the shot. <laughs> <laughs> dirty 30, dirty 30. So thank you guys. Last week was a big week for us. We put out two episodes. We put out an episode on crypto and um, investment banking, and we also put out the, the Af- episode on Africa. Yeah, shout out to Fritz Charles. Yeah, so that was those were both tremendous episodes, um, done tremendously well for us. So thank you. Thank you, guys. We appreciate it. And we appreciate all your support for rocking with us. Yeah. Um, before we start, I want to uh, break some news. So if you follow the podcast, you know that we are traveling, right? We we did network. We doing these, we're doing these networking event meeting greets, and um, we went to LA. That's when the first one yep. was in LA in April. And then um, we went to Brooklyn, and we recently went to Atlanta. So the fourth stop is Houston, Texas. Houston, get ready. Houston, we're on our way. Um, we 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 will be releasing dates very very soon, but. Within the next couple of weeks, yeah. within the next couple of weeks, with your help, with hopefully everybody that we've been saying that gets on that we wanted on the podcast, we'll make it on the podcast. Yeah. So we're gonna, we're gonna need a little bit of help from Houston. If we need we need some help from Houston, but more importantly, we just need your support. So make sure you come out. It's all of our first times in Texas. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it's gonna be good energy, good vibe out there for sure, for sure. I'm, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, one. but more importantly, 
We have a very special guest with us today, Nicole Russell. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Nicole does a lot of different things, but um, she is the co-founder and executive director of Precious Dreams Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization. We're going to talk about it. So this episode, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but we haven't covered the nonprofit organization in industry yet. And um, a lot of people want to start nonprofits or they work for nonprofits. They want to understand how nonprofits work. It's interesting that the name is nonprofit, but everything makes a profit in yeah. some level, right? Um, but we're going to talk about the, 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 how to set up a nonprofit and all of that stuff. But also, we're going to talk about her journey to get here. It's very, very interesting. Hustler. Yeah, true hustler, <laughs> true hustler. So she was Glamour's Everyday Hero of the Year. She was uh, Observer's Top 20 Heroes on the 40 and also Walmart's Community Playmaker Award. She won that. Yeah. Lots of lots of awards I did not apply for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, all right, before we go into your work now, um, I think it's important to tell your backstory. So, you was telling us off camera, but I think it's interesting. So, how you got here? As far as um, you went to, you went, you you took a untraditional route, right? Because a lot of times we we've had episodes we talked about college, and everybody has different views on college, right? And we had Chris Gotti, right? Mm-hmm. And he was saying that he wished that he would have gone to college because he thought that it would have helped him, but he, he didn't actually, never went to college. Right. But you did the Kanye thing where you went, but you didn't finish, right? Yeah, so, college dropout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, can you, how, that, so can you talk about that? Yeah, so before I do, I will say that my one year, because I did one, um, <laughs> my one year in college was one of the best years of my life. And it wasn't because of the education that I received, it was because of the experiences and relationships that I developed. So I do think there's so many valuable things that can come out of going to school. Um, However, I don't have any regrets on not finishing. The one thing that I will say is when you don't have that degree and you walk into any space, you have to, you know, prove your worth. Um, And you have to work five times as hard in everything that you do when you don't have a degree. So it's, it's been tough. It's really been tough. And even you see that that meme on Instagram where it's like that success is not that straight, narrow path, but it's really like yeah, a yeah, crazy yeah. zigzag. I, think I, posted, I posted that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what my life has looked like. Yeah. <laughs> well, so what what made you, um, since you had such a good year, freshman year, what made you drop out after your freshman year? Because I had other plans. Um, you know, there were, there were things that I wanted to do um, that I, I couldn't do. Also financially, uh, my parents could not afford it. It's crazy. I'm actually still paying off my debt from college. For the one year? Yes, yeah. because crazy. my parents didn't give me a dime to go to school. But I really wanted to move to California. So I took out a private loan, which was not the smartest thing to do. And I covered my full tuition, my travel expenses, everything that I needed to go to school. I just took it out. Um, so I am still paying that off, but I realized very quickly going into my second year that I could not afford to do that again. No, that's dope. And it's, it's, it's dope that you took the initiative and just said you didn't let fear ruin it. Right. Because a lot of times people move out of fear. And I think I'm a little jaded when it comes to college because I, I never, I never did a job application. So like, even when you saying, you know, as far as on the job applications, they look at you funny if you don't have a college degree. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, I never filled out a job application before. So that's not normal. So I think mm-hmm. I'm, I, my perspective on things is a little different because I never had a job. Yeah. So, but for the, for most people, you know, it is something that 
can hold you back, right? Yeah, there? for sure. I mean, I couldn't have had a career in education without it. Like, so well, you need it. Yeah, I, I, it's absolutely mandatory that I go to school for four years and then have a master's degree and pass all these certifications. Um, so it was needed for me. Right. Um, it wasn't even an option. Like, I tr- truly feel like I could have done what I'm doing now um, without all the school. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, New York State mandated that I had to do these things, so I had to do them. Yeah, it, and it really just depends on what you want to do, right? Because now I'm teaching in schools and I do trainings for educators yeah. without a degree. Um, but it's because <laughs> I'm so teaching dope. social and emotional stuff, which yeah. is not, which are things that you can learn in school, but also I've been able to learn it through experience and working with the target audience. So last year, they passed a law in New York and Virginia to require mental health education in public schools. Yeah, you big. know, before that happened, there's no way I could have walked into a school and said, I want to host an assembly and teach your um, educators how to how to teach mental health. You know, they would have looked at me crazy if I was just like, well, you know, this is what I bring to the table by having this experience at a nonprofit. But because it became mandatory, yeah. a lot of schools were scrambling, looking for content. There aren't that many books out there that do, you know, this type of work, mental health or like um, self-help for minorities, um, for people that live in underserved areas. So they were happy to start using the book to have me come in. Yeah. So social emotional health is something that is just like completely overlooked in our community, Mm -hmm. completely like, and more so over the past, I'd say five to 10 years, it's become more of the forefront for adults. With yeah. the kids in our community, it is not even a thing. Like, I've but had it, some experiences. It was just like, wait, huh? How, how, how are we supposed to just ignore this? Yeah, but I think that's changing, too. Yeah. Honestly, like, in a few years, it's going to be just as popular to talk about self-care for teens mm-hmm. as it is for adults. Yeah. So, all right. So, can we back up a little bit? Because you, you, you worked at a restaurant, right? Well, you worked in a restaurant industry, um, and then you, you worked your way up, and then you got to a point where... You asked for equity partnership, right? I did. Can you explain that? Because we talk about equity yeah. partnership a lot. And um, so this know. is after you came back from California. Yes. So as soon as I got back, I uh, had to get a job. I started waitressing in New York City, one of the most popular things, you know, that anybody can do. Um, and I was always very ambitious. I wanted to do more and I wanted to make the most money. In every space that I've gone to, I've always wanted to figure out how do I get into the position to make the big money. Um, How do I learn what's needed to make the big money? So I started waitressing. I very quickly asked if I could be trained to bartend. I didn't even drink. I didn't even know like, (laughs) I didn't know the difference between beers and like dark liquor, light liquor. I learned that very quickly, started bartending. Um, I learned that I didn't like those hours. So I asked if I could start managing. And the general manager at the time looked at me like I was crazy and said, you know, well, you don't have any experience managing. I said, I know I don't, but I know how to do all of the positions that you need to manage and I do them very well. I'm bringing in the most money here, so it would make sense to have someone like me lead. Um, And then it was a couple weeks after I had that conversation that our manager at the time got fired. And then I ended up moving my way up into that position. Um, then moving my way up into the general manager position. And at some point I was learning the bookkeeping and running the entire place. And at that point, as a 24 year old, young African-American girl working in Times Square, I was like, well, then I should be partly owning this place. Uh, and I asked, <laughs> very, yeah, ambitious. very ambitious. And I asked, um, I asked for a very small percent, like under 10%. And they said they would consider it. 
and they gave me the runaround for too long, and I just decided I would take my value somewhere else. So at 24 years old and one year of college, right, how did you develop enough courage to ask an established, you, you in Times Square, that's an established restaurant. Right. How do you get enough courage to ask established restaurant owners who I'm assuming are much older than you and don't look like you for ownership in their business? Like how did that, how did that conversation develop in your brain? Like, so in everything that I do, because I'm an introverted person and some people can walk into a room and verbally share you know, what they're going to do and how people need them. And I just, I've never known how to do that. So I've always quietly and very humbly worked my butt off, Mm -hmm. um, knowing that I can be the best at everything as long as I work very hard. And so I was very aware of my worth, very aware of what I could bring to the table. And I knew that they needed me. So in my mind, if someone needs you, they're going to do everything they can to keep you. But I had put myself in that position before I jumped out the window and made that ask. So, because that's important what you just said as far as you, you realize that they needed you, right? Yeah, you got to know your worth. You have to know your worth, right? And that's yeah. true with anything in business relationships, personal relationships, whatever. But it's so hard. People struggle with that all the time, right? Yeah. People struggle with that all the time where they don't know their worth. They yeah. don't realize that how valuable they are, right? So... As far as, like, what would be your advice as far as for people to say, okay, look, this is something that I think I'm worth. This is, I need to ask for a raise. I need to ask for a partnership because it's not easy to do that. It's very difficult, especially, especially like if you, as you get older, you have a family Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of times we just, you just kind of become set yeah. and yeah. it's like, okay, I just, you know, the risk becomes a lot higher when there's a lot on the line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You, 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 you develop less courage as you get older. Mm-hmm. I feel. Um, so yeah. Like what, what's, what's, what's the advice for people to, to go out there and just really take charge of their destiny for that? You know? I would say prove your why, because you know, in, in the corporate world, there are people who complain about doing things that are outside of their roles and responsibilities. And if you ask someone to do something that they're not supposed to do, they'll give up and say, well, I'm not supposed to do that. Um, And then there are those who will do it and complain probably internally, Mm -hmm. but not say anything. They'll do it and they'll show you that they can do more than you've hired them for. And then they'll go in and have a conversation and say, well, while we're doing this review over the last year, here's my contract. This is what I was supposed to do. And this is everything else that I took on. And usually that's a surprise to the person who's been continuously asking more for you um, than they realize you were supposed to be doing because you always say yes. And I'm not saying that you should you know, take on more than you can chew, but at the same time, if you want to grow in your position, you should always be ready and willing to go above and beyond. I, I think communication is important too. Because mm-hmm. even in like relationships, I think a lot of times people don't communicate properly and that's a problem, right? It happens in business all the time where we, you don't say what you want. People can't yeah. read your mind yeah, and yeah, people yeah. are never going to go out their way to give you something extra, right? No. A closed mouth doesn't get fed. Yeah, no. it's like I'm gonna keep piling on until you finally say something, and when you do, I'll say, "All right, well, good job." Right? right. It's like the know your worth is, is key. Like we, I, I like to think of it as like it'll take something to happen happen for people to learn. Like as you're getting these tasks, they don't realize that you're learning more and more. Like mm-hmm. now, I feel like I can do these jobs. So like when you prove it to them, it's like, yeah, I've been doing yeah. it. Now pay us like you owe us. No, nah, it's like mm-hmm. um, me, me and Jamal have this conversation a lot. We're gonna show you Jamal soon. I, I referenced him last episode and this episode as well, but um, he's coming, don't worry. 
But um, you got to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Yes. Nobody wants to have the uncomfortable conversations, yeah. right? Nobody. It's human nature. Nobody right. really, you, you, nobody wants to have an uncomfortable conversation. But sometimes you have to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. And I've had uncomfortable conversations in business. And you know what the crazy thing about it is? Most of the time, they're not really that uncomfortable because you, you've already psyched yourself mentally for so long. Like you've walked past the person's office. 10 times already. Yeah. You've had the conversation in your head. No, nah, you, you make excuses like, oh, it's too early. I'm going to wait till the afternoon. <laughs> then you go in the afternoon and it's like he's out for lunch. It looks and then like he's like, having a bad day. The day is almost over. And then it's like, okay, let me wait 10 minutes. It's like you wake up like all kinds yeah, of excuses. You, you delay it for so long. You double dutching the whole time. And then by the time you actually do it, it's like, because at the end of the day, you could just say yes or no. That's the only Absolutely. thing that can happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's happen. more uncomfortable to be unhappy. So you might as well ask. There it is. That's a gem. So, all right, can we jump to Madison Square Garden? Yep. So you 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 realized that they wasn't going to give you um, equity in, yep. in the restaurant business, and you you've reached the, the level where you you felt that you you couldn't do any more and not get compensated as you should get compensated. So you you took a leap of faith and you and you quit, right? Yep. Okay. So then you then you start VIP services at Madison Square Garden, right? So no, I didn't start it. Uh, so I quit my job without having a backup plan, which everyone tells you not to do. They always say never leave a position until you get another one. But I, you know, leaned on faith, <laughs> and uh, I just felt very confident that. Well, one was like I said earlier, if you're, it's it's more uncomfortable to be unhappy. So I had become unhappy in that position, and yes, I had to take care of my financial needs, but I need to take care of my mental needs too. So I knew that I needed to leave regardless. I did that and then the very next day after my last day of work, I got a phone call from one of my old clients at the restaurant who happened to work at Madison Square Garden and they said that they were expanding their VIP services department, doing renovations and opening up these VIP spaces and they needed a manager. And they actually asked if I could refer someone because they didn't know that I had quit. I had never told any of my clients that I was unhappy or that I was leaving. And I always made sure that up until the last day, I worked hard. So I was able to utilize so many relationships that I gained through my last position um, to help me in, in not just eventually getting that role at Madison Square Garden, but with everything else that I decided to do after I started a nonprofit. Hmm. Okay. And... How long were you at Madison Square Garden? Seven years. So then you leave Madison Square Garden, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about that in the next segment as far as starting the nonprofit. But before we talk about that, what made you decide to even want to start a nonprofit? So it's deep. Um, I always wanted to help children and I always wanted to live in service of others, right? So that's, when you're working in the hospitality industry, that is to serve people, period. It doesn't matter if it's in a hotel setting, if you're a cashier at a sneaker store, you're in service of others at all times. I wanted to do that and I wanted to help children that just didn't know how. My mother actually took in a foster child and she suffered from nightmares seven nights a week because of her traumatic experiences. The foster, foster child? Yeah, and my mother had to introduce comfort items to her for the very first time at age four to help her get back to sleep. She was waking my mother up every single night. Comfort items, you mean like teddy bears and things Teddy like bears, that? pajamas, blankets. Like your blankie? Yeah. Okay. And my mom told me about it and said, you know, I wonder how foster kids sleep. 
when they have nightmares? What do they do in the middle of the night? And it's not a thought that had ever crossed my mind. Um, and so, you know, my mother's idea was for us to start donating comfort items, a very simple thing to do because of a cause that was now important to her. And my job was just to look online and figure out places where she could make these donations. And in doing research, I realized that there were no organizations that focused solely on packages of bedtime items, comfort items. And so my simple fix to that was, let me just figure out how to incorporate an organization so that we can do it on a very small scale, but at least um, we'll have a place to kind of funnel everything through. And Precious Dreams started with the concept of putting together care packages for foster kids. And then six months after that, everything changed. All right, dope. All right, so the next segment we're gonna talk about the business and nonprofit, how to start one and uh, how to get it off the ground. All right, so now we're gonna go into the business of nonprofit, um, setting up nonprofits, because we haven't spoke about that. We haven't yeah. spoke, we spoke a little bit about charities with Derek Ferguson, but not really in depth about um, how to start one because he's he's the head of a charity, but he didn't start that charity. No. Where this is, you started a charity, right? Yeah. So, okay. What are the steps? Can you walk us through the steps of how to start a nonprofit 501c3? Yep. Okay, so the first thing is you don't have to have a 501c3. Can you just explain what a 501c3 is? So a 501c3 allows you, according to the IRS, to be tax exempt, which then allows all donors to write off anything that they contribute to your organization. It's very important if you need large amounts of funding. If you don't, and what you're trying to do can can get by on like a $1,500 budget or a $2,000 budget, you don't need the 501c3. Would that budget be monthly or annually? Annually. Okay. There's, there's okay. you know, it just depends on what you're budgeting for. You know, some people have a, a plant project and they just want to plant things a couple times a year. You know, it just depends on what you're doing. Yeah, I was told something like that the process is, is very long, like independent on how it much is. you need. So like you can apply for the 501c3 if you're making if you're anticipating having ten thousand dollars or less yeah that's the initial one but mm -hmm. if you're planning more that that process takes a lot longer it does and i actually so we incorporated the organization and then we filed for the 501c3 at the same time and it was about three or four months later i planned our first annual fundraiser because we needed the funding to really get started on what we were trying to accomplish and in my mind i'm thinking if you look online it tells you you can get approved for a 501c3 between two to 12 months. Mm. So of course, I'm always think I'm always being optimistic and I'm like, well, three two. to four, we might make it. We didn't. Um, so we did the first fundraiser and of course people are gonna give very minimal amounts because they can't write it off. And it's a, it's a huge incentive for any donor to know that not only am I helping this cause, but I can also, it'll help me with my taxes. taxes yeah. So we didn't get it approved in time, but we ended up getting it a year later. So, all right, what's time. the process to get a 501c3? Like, what do you have to do to get one? There's a long application. Um, there's a long application, and you have to be organized and have everything. You have to, you have to answer with as many details as possible. If but, you want to get approved without questions first from what, the IRS. What kind of questions? All right. So, so mission statement. Okay. You need a mission statement. Mm -hmm. You need the name. Everything that you would need to do to start a business. You have to be very clear about what you're doing. And when I say mission statement, it's funny. I'm remembering this now. We The IRS actually came back and said that our mission statement was too broad. 
and that's why we didn't get approved the first time around. I think the initial uh, mission statement was to help foster and homeless youth self-comfort. That could mean anything. So then we had to go in and revise the mission, um, apply with the state to change that, and then resubmit the application for the 501c3. Now, is this something that you did yourself, or did you have lawyers involved? I hired help, yeah. Definitely hired help. And I would recommend, if anybody doesn't already have that experience in the nonprofit sector, hire where you need, especially when it comes to accounting. Um, get the support so that the first time around you're not making those mistakes. So um, when you had to narrow down your mission statement, like what, what was your revised mission statement? So now the mission statement is helping uh, foster and homeless youth self-comfort by providing comfort items for bedtime and programs that inspires them to self-soothe. And that was okay? And that was okay. So then, all right, so you have that, you have to um, set it up as a business, like you have like an LLC set mm-hmm. up? Not, not an LLC, uh, but it's the same steps of like having to, you don't have to trademark, but I highly recommend it um, because the work of a nonprofit easily inspires someone else to want to do similar work and they can, they can take your name and do it in another state if they want to. So trademarking, I highly recommend filing for um, the setup for the nonprofit the same way you would with the LLC okay. for your state. Um, and then applying for that 501c3 early if you expect um, or if you want to receive large funds. Is there like a fee for that? Um, yes, there's a fee. There's a fee for every application. So you have to have some funds to get started. When I applied in 2012, I think that the 501c3 application was like $800. I'm not sure if it's increased since then. But yes, you definitely need something in order to get started. Okay, so you do the application, you get well, as the 501c3 is going through the process, because it could take up to a year, mm-hmm. what, what else do you need to get off the ground to start the actual charity? Everything. <laughs> can, right, can you explain that? So, so <laughs> you need a website. Okay. Uh, you need a marketing plan. You need a business plan. Marketing plan. Can we can we talk about that? Yeah. Because all right, how do you so now? Before you even go into that, like this is you and someone else, like the co like who else is doing this? So the co-founder was my mother, but right. no, she uh, she was living her best life in Florida. So <laughs> my mom was not involved in um, you know actually getting the organization started. I was doing this on my own with the help of friends okay. who believed in me and the organization. So that's the next step in like, uh, and I'll get back to marketing. But you need you need a marketing plan. You need a business plan. Um, you need a board of directors. You need people that are going to hold you accountable, which most people don't know. So when you're applying for this paperwork, you can't just put your name on it. If people are giving donations, the IRS wants to know who else is tracking these dollars to make sure that you're not out here spending these these funds in the wrong way. Um, So when I first started, and I think most people when they start nonprofits, it's usually people that are very connected to you as well as the mission. And mm-hmm. so they'll sign on to support you. And that's usually how the board starts. And then eventually it grows. You have to have a board of directors. Yes. How many people? Three. Non-negotiable, you have to. You, you have, have to. to. Got it. They have it, to have titles or they're just board of directors? Um, yes, and they need titles. So you need a president, um, you need a treasurer, and you need a secretary. And that, that's New York State standard or federal? New York State. Okay. Yeah. So, all right, you have those three people. Um, those people have to actually be active? They should be active. (laughs) So here's the thing. It's like kindly recommended um, because they're putting themselves on the line. 
by signing that paperwork, okay. right? So if you have someone sign as a secretary and it's your cousin, but they're not actually doing the work, if you get audited or there is an issue, they're going to come looking for you and your cousin. So everybody should understand how serious it is when they are signing that paperwork. Okay. Can we talk about marketing? Yeah. So how do you put together a marketing plan for a nonprofit organization? Because it's different, right? Like we're marketing, let's say we, we want to market our podcast, right? Or you, mm-hmm. you're marketing a, a product, right? It's a little different than marketing for a nonprofit because it's, it's charity, yeah. right? So it's like you kind of, it's kind of, a, in my opinion, it's, it's a little delicate walk because you don't want to make it seem like you're selling something, but obviously you, you need funds. We're going to talk about fundraising, but you need funds. So how do you how do you how do you do that? Like how do you market for a charity? I think the two most important things to consider when marketing is who is your target audience and then also what do your donors need to see and understand in order to give. Mm-hmm. So the more your donors know, the more they will give. Period. Um, making sure that in everything that you do, whether it's just utilizing social media, that every image, every caption Every meme, everything that you're sharing explains the mission clearly. Transparency is the number one thing in trying to solicit donors. Um, The second thing is making sure that you are marketing towards the people that you need to do the service, right? So when I started this organization, I wanted to market this towards people who run the foster care agencies in New York City, as well as the homeless shelters. So figuring out what do they need to see in order to understand what our services are. And that's sometimes is simply putting together a kit that explains and breaks everything down. Here's the mission, here's our values, here's our logo, here's our one-year plan, here's the program that we can provide or the curriculum, just depending on what you wanna do. Mm -hmm. Um, And ironing all of that out so that they can understand it, and then they choose whether or not they want to work with you. So you're, you're pretty much, I mean, you're not selling in the sense of an item, but you're selling your vision and your passion yeah. in a sense, right? Yeah, and making it clear. I mean, for there's another nonprofit. A friend of mine runs an organization called Kicks for the City. It's a very simple mission. They give shoes to the homeless. So in all of their packaging, they're showing photos, images of sneakers, um, images of, of homeless. So, so people can just simply connect the dots. Here's the mission, here's the value, and here's what it looks like if you give. It's easy. So, all right, so the biggest part of charity, mm-hmm. nonprofit organization, is that you have to have money, right? Yeah. It's actually a business, right? That's something that people need to understand, too, if you think about running a, a, a nonprofit, a successful nonprofit, yeah. is that you have to run it like a business because it is a business, right? Um, so we're going to talk about funding. So nonprofits get majority of their funding from donors, right? How do you raise? It depends. What, what's the other ways? Yeah, it depends. You can get um, a majority through individual donors, through state funding, through federal funding. Um, those those are the three right, main so ways. Let's, yeah. So let's, let's let's talk about donors. Yeah. How does how would some what's the one on one blueprint to attract individual donors? Reel them in so that they understand the cause and make sure that you are speaking to people who care about that mission, that specific mission. So with Precious Dreams, I had to find a way, how do I connect the issues of foster and homeless youth and make it relatable to someone who's never been in those shoes? So the first thing that we did was target parents because parents understand the importance of comfort items. Mm -hmm. So. I remember my first year I would have meetings and one of the first questions I asked was, do you have kids? What's their bedtime routine? Do you read to them? 
do what do they do they sleep in pajamas and it immediately brings them to this happy place of thinking of like what that looks like for their kids and how important it is to them mm-hmm. and then i would help them vision what a typical night looks like in a homeless shelter or what a night looks like for a foster kid who's sleeping in a room with five other families on a mattress that's on the floor and immediately they feel connected um you know and then they want to give they want to save someone because they can't understand how someone else could be lacking what their child has or what they have that they were taking for granted because they just did never thought about the person who lacks. Yeah, it's a commonality. Like we were all children at some point. Yeah. Right? And we probably all have gone through some experience as a child, whether it was like somebody putting you to bed or mm-hmm. your bedtime routine. Um, I want to go to the, the, the fact of state funding and federal funding. So like, uh, how does that work? And is, are there acts or initiatives that the state provides that just like, you know what, I should target them or how do you go about it? Um, it depends on what you're doing, again, with the nonprofit. So if you're providing a service for schools or for educators, mm-hmm. it's very easy to go after state funding. If you are providing sneakers to the homeless, it's a little harder to get those grants approved because they might not see the importance in that work. Um, so, yeah, it, it just depends on what you're doing. But those applications are available online. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a full list of the state money that's available, federal money that's available and you just have to see whether or not you fall along so how important is grant writers grant writers are very important um they're very very important especially if you don't have relationships with a lot of individual donors because you need one or the other um grant writers and also researchers are another a whole nother animal because a lot of times and we we learned this the hard way i thought you know let's let's find a grant writer you find the grant writer and they're like okay so who's doing the grant research because that's a whole nother job yeah i'm not even heard of that title what's what their job to do to research, research. <laughs> everything yes and, and it takes hours because there there are so many grants available yeah. but there could be one small thing in that grant one requirement and yeah. your organization just doesn't fall under it so making sure before you waste anybody's time and they're writing this full proposal that you fall in on all of the requirements that are listed for that one specific grant and most of these grants um government or private or like a mixture of both a mix yeah private, public, state, federal. And it's just, you could just Google and probably find a lot yep. as far as for different causes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a lot of them are very public. Some are invite only, um, which are harder to apply for. Which, but What's that, invite only? So there's a lot of private, especially like family foundations, where they've set up to, to give finances annually to different organizations, but they don't want to have thousands of applications coming in. There are over 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States. So if you are a very small, like three or four person run organization where you're trying to just simply give out $20,000 a year, you don't want 1.5 million people applying. Um, And so what they'll do is they'll restrict it to a certain county or a certain state. And people will have to know someone in order to get in. It's kind of like, like, I don't want to say mafia, but like you have to know somebody in order to even figure out what their application process is to get in the door. It's like the members only. So, so where, where, does your, only. Where, where does your funding come from? Most of, a majority of our funding comes from individual donors. And that is a gift um, that I've been able to receive because of the work that I've done. So in having that, that, 
that history, that job history at places like Madison Square Garden, where I've been able to develop relationships with the 1% in New York City, um, or you know, the athletes and artists that come through and they're invited to sit courtside at our games, the Gary V's of the internet, like all of those people I developed great relationships with by them seeing my work ethic, but then also my character, seeing that I am someone who is um, responsible but kind. And so when I approach those people about giving to my nonprofit, the answer is yes more than no. So do you have, because I, like, I think um, Derek Ferguson, the Robin Hood dinner is like $5,000 minimum. It's like $5,000 per plate. To enter, yeah. And it's sold out, you can't get in. And so that's crazy. But um, like, how do you price? How do you ask for money? And like, do you do it in galas? How do you know how much to ask for? There's so many ways to fundraise. So many ways. Um, so one thing that's very important. We talk. When we go back and talk about boards, right? Your board of directors should be very diverse. And they should have a network far beyond your reach so that they can go out as ambassadors and promote your organization to receive funding um, from anyone that they're connected to. Mm -hmm. Then you can utilize social media. There's a lot of ways that you can raise money on social media. There's a lot of platforms like GiveSmart.com is a platform that you can pay for where you can set up fundraising pages, but then it also gives you text numbers. So like the text to give where you can send out a number and say, if you text this number, you can donate $25 instantly. That's a platform that allows you to do it. Um, galas are very important. Selling a ticket to provide an experience for somebody is the easiest way to fundraise. Who doesn't want to come to an open bar experience or to see a performer um, to go out to have a good time? So galas are honestly probably one of the biggest, um, the biggest ways that nonprofits are able to generate funds, especially for, for Precious Dreams. That's definitely our, our go-to every year. You have an annual gala? Yes, mm -hmm. every fall. So on the business side, um, how do you know, all right, you, you, you run an organization, not you, but just anybody, right? And that's your job. So you have to make a living. You have to, you know, provide for yourself, right? So how do you know, or what's the rule of thumb? Like how much money should you be taking for your own personal? It, it never really seems like it's right because it's like a charity you don't want to take, but it's still a job. You, you're you right. doing something, you know, and you got to get compensated for that, obviously. So yeah, especially like when you're the owner of it because it's up to you. Like how do you determine like how much money you take from that as your personal salary? So I think the most important word when it comes to thriving in the nonprofit space is transparency. And... Annual reports are important. Mm -hmm. An annual report is more than just the 990, which you need to fill out every year so that the government knows how you're spending your money. But an annual report will break down exactly how much money went to operational costs, to programming, to office supplies, to everything. And a lot of times, big donors want to see where every dollar went last year. And if you can show that, then they will give more. Like I said earlier, the more that, the more that a donor knows, the more they will give. So so we always make sure that we're very transparent about what we give, but then also making sure that they see the numbers that they that they that they'd want to see, right? So like, if I'm giving a dollar, I want to know that at least seventy-five cents of my dollar is going to go towards the, the children and the images that you're showing me in this deck to that program. And so at Precious Dreams, 
it's interesting because I kind of mimics an idea that I saw from Usher's foundation. So Usher has the New Look Foundation and I don't know if they still do this, but years ago, their board was covering 100% of the operational cost. And so they marketed uh, on the website that 100% of your donation goes to the programming. And that will reel anybody in. So I went to my board. This is actually how I was able to get approved for a salary. I went to my board and said, this is what I saw. And I think that this is a great approach. And because we're only still at like the $60,000 annual level, would you guys be willing to put together um, a cost so that this is, this is how much would go towards operational costs. And then this is how much that you give to the organization every year. And they voted because voting is another thing that must happen on your board. They voted, it was approved and they actually cover my salary. So when people donate to precious dreams, none of that money goes to operational costs. Who's they? My board, my board of directors. They, they out of their pocket out of their pocket yeah which says so much yeah, right that's, that's so like approach. the the highest level um the highest level of leadership at my organization believes in this mission so much that out of pocket they pay for my salary so if rule of thumb like if we're starting a nonprofit, what, what would you say the percentage would be for a the, nonprofit to have an operational cost the recommended according to according to like charity navigator would be 40% should go towards operational costs and anything outside of programming. Everything else should go towards programming and then if it doesn't, they would they judge you. There's a lot of like grading systems online for nonprofits. So you you will get graded on a lower scale if you are taking that money and putting it. So, so if, we, we so got, if, it's like, if like a million dollars comes in, 400,000 should go to operational costs, 600,000 should go to the prop to the yes. right. And, and that, mm -hmm. that operational cost obviously if you have staff with you um, obviously supplies can fall in that list too mm -hmm. okay. yeah and and also it's like just accountability and being smart about how you spend that money because there's no rule that says that you have to but if you get an audit from the IRS and they look at how you're spending they can pull that 501c3 at any time okay all right that was good that was a lot of good information yeah obviously some stuff that we're going to take advantage of this, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing with our podcast. We try to provide information for people. It's like a how-to manual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then from there, hopefully, they'll be inspired. If they want to, you know, be inspired to, to, you know, seek more information. But, you know, it's like a... It's like when your kid first rides a bike and you push them. Yeah. yeah. Then they got to start riding on their own. Yeah. But you, sometimes what we lack, especially in our community, is the, la the first push. Right. So we just get on a bike and try to ride it. And then we just keep falling off because we, we, we never had momentum. Right. Yeah. So knowledge is momentum. Yeah. So if you have the right knowledge, then that can propel you to heights unseen. Yeah. Absolutely. But even if your viewers don't want to start nonprofits, I'm sure a lot of people who tune in make donations, right? right? So like there are certain things that you don't even know about giving just because it's not out there. Like the the FML, like the 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 fair market, no, the FMV, the fair market value of your donation. I recently produced this collaboration where um, Champion and Complex created this sweatshirt, this limited edition sweatshirt where 100% of the proceeds went to Social Works. Mm -hmm. The sweatshirt was $100. $100 went to Social Works. However, 
a donor, anybody who purchased that sweatshirt could not write off a $100 donation because they received a sweatshirt that had a value of $75. So really, you can only write off the difference. Even when you go to a fundraiser, if the ticket is $200, somewhere on that invitation or on the website where you're purchasing um, the ticket, it'll say FMV in very small letters. It's always small because most people don't want the donor to know. It'll say the level of the experience. So if you're going to an open bar experience, it'll say your FMV is $125. So if you're buying a ticket at $200, you're only able to write off now, 75 depending, depending on who's at that event, that FMV will go up, obviously, right? No. no. Who's in attendance <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. Oh, okay. no, Drake, who, Drake is yeah. Drake. No, I'm just thinking, like, if I know, if, if I can... Right, if I have Kanye there, right, if, then... If he's performing, okay. yes. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Um, so if, if there's a performance, there's a value to that. Okay. If there's food, there's a value to that. Right, and they then, can go up the, the sales that they're doing from their shows. Yeah, right? and the nonprofit's job is to be transparent and let their donors know it ahead of time what they're going to get out of that experience and then what is the difference of what they can write off. Education. I didn't know that. I'm a financial advisor. I never knew that. My understanding, I thought whatever you give to charity, you just write off, and it's 100%. A lot of people do that, and a lot of people also don't even realize that they're not right. You know, you're, you're filling it out that you're writing off that much money, but the IRS does a lot of checks. And so you, if you ever get audited, the IRS, they can come back and say you, absolutely. you wrote off um, $100 for the dinner, but really you only get $25 because the dinner was worth $75. Yep. But it's up to the charity to tell you to inform you on that. Mm -hmm. If the charity doesn't inform you on that, can that fall back on them? It can, but the thing is most people don't know that they're being informed by the small print. It's the same way as you look at a website. Yeah. I mean, on, on a commercial, you see that fine print on the bottom. That is not their responsibility if you don't read it. Yeah, it's like the back of a ticket. Like, nobody ever looks at the well, back. Well, nobody, nobody reads. Yeah. Well, nobody looks at the back either. It's just like, I'm here, here's my thing. It's yep. like Facebook. When you sign up, there's like a whole thing. We'll take your information. We'll sell it to yeah. the private Or the Apple company. update. It's like 11 pages long. Nobody is going to read yeah. 11 pages. But what are you not, not going to do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're going to do the it. Alternative. Yeah, like, with your the charity, you can have a... Apple, what are you going to say? No, I'm not going to have an iPhone. Yeah, and I hope I'm not discouraging people to, <laughs> to <laughs> no, give, no, 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 no. but definitely pay attention no, to no, that. It's good information. I appreciate that because, like I said, that's one of the things with the podcast is that, you know, even I learn every single podcast, I learn something from the podcast. So that was something that I was not aware of. Yeah. And I learned something. So, yes. Yeah, but, but any other form of, like, charity in a, in a in regular form, that's 100% write-off, right? Or as long as there's nothing received in exchange. And that's why every receipt usually says that at the bottom of the letter. What about if you give clothes? If you give clothes? It's like the value of the clothes, right? It's not the value of when you purchased it unless it's still brand new and it has a tag on it. It's the value of what it is now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like Salvation Army, like they, they give you like a yeah, ticket item. Ticket right? yep. For like what, what's it worth? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, now that's all self-taught, right? You have yeah. to go through experience to learn yes. all that. Mm -hmm. well, and that plays in the tax. It's all, all this stuff intertwines. Um, so that plays into taxes as well. It's a tax play. And that's why a lot of wealthy people, you know, start foundations also, right? Yeah. Can we talk about that briefly? Um, we wasn't, I wasn't really planning on talking about that. I just thought about that. A lot of athletes specifically and, and entertainers and stuff, they start foundations because it's a, it's a, a way for them to lower the taxable income. It's a tax shelter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's also a way for them to... It sounds terrible. It's also a way for athletes to have their name on something that someone else is funding. Mm. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of basketball clinics that happen 
And just because you see that particular celebrity's name on the clinic doesn't mean that there's not 10 other sponsors that are coming in and actually paying for it. So, of course, you're going to get more support when you have that big name. That's why a lot of smaller organizations, grassroots like like my own, will look after, will seek ambassadors and celebrities to get behind our stuff because we know when people see that name, they give more. So how does that help them personally as far as they start a charity? How does that help them? Write-offs. It's a write-off. For them personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the write-offs, but it, so there's two parts to it. Um, they, they get the write-offs by giving financially on their own, but then also it's a great marketing tool. You know, yeah, like I not only great. do this, but I also care. And you don't have to be there to do it. So Usher, I'm just gonna throw that one out there again. Usher's new look. I've worked with that organization about three times now. We've partnered on different things. I've never worked with Usher. But every time that we do anything and they post anything and it goes on the website, it says Usher's new look. All right. Well, that was very good information. In the next segment, we're going to talk about mental health, something that is very important in our community. We're also going to talk about your book and um, some other things you got going on as well. All right. So in the last segment, we are going to talk about a few different things. But I want to start the conversation with mental health. Yeah. Uh, mental health is something that is... Um, in season right now, and it's good. You, you, you see a lot of people, Charlemagne just, just wrote a book about anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's a conversation that is is um, a long time coming, right? Yeah. But it's something that is happening and it's encouraging because mental health is real. Yeah. Uh, mental illness is real. Mental wellness is real and all of these different things um, that come along with it. So you, you wrote a book um, and it's about, correct me if I'm wrong, but socially emotional disorder yes um so it's actually a a book for teens and it's a guide to all of the support both mental physical um challenges that they might be facing in school everyday things where they need support and they might not feel comfortable talking to an adult about all of that content is in yeah. the book. so working working in charity in the charity field especially with your foundation where you, you're, you're working with um homeless um, youth and and children in foster care, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Obviously, they have a lot of issues, right? Um, so, like, the mental health effects, like, can you break that down? Because it's difficult, right? Even if you're from an environment that might not be the best neighborhood, it's still different if you have a family. It's hard for people to relate to somebody that doesn't have a family. Like, that's one of the biggest things in life is family. Like, every family is everything, right? So it's difficult for somebody to relate to somebody that doesn't have a family, right? Like, can you talk about like what you've seen as far as the mental effects of children that that don't have family or they have like really broken families? Yeah, so so it's interesting because I wasn't taught that growing up, that family is everything. There's actually um, a line in my book, which for me personally is the most important line because it helps people understand why I am walking in this lane of purpose and it is most days I felt invisible and that forced me to see myself Mm. and so before I even started Precious Dreams Foundation in 2012 I understood that I needed to self comfort when I was dealing with adversity that nobody was going to come and save me and those were early lessons that I had learned. Yeah, I, I think I like the, the phrase that you, you use, emotional independence. Mm-hmm. Like that is so powerful. Yeah. And so I think that 
I could relate to the youth that I'm serving, not because I've ever been homeless or in foster care, but I had similar experiences with some of the adversity that they faced and I felt abandoned at times and I felt alone at times. And so a lot of people start that discovery of self-care and understanding why they need it in their mid twenties or their late thirties. And that's usually when like the parents start to let go Mm -hmm. and you realize that you are on your own but I was working with a population of people who needed to figure that out at 12 and 13, and they didn't have the answers, and they had a whole bunch of people around them who were being paid to ask questions and being paid to care. And so that doesn't make it very easy for you to trust. Now, while yes, they're around some amazing people, there's some social workers out here with the biggest hearts in the world, but for a youth who has trust issues and doesn't doesn't feel comfortable opening up, who are they going to talk to? Yeah. And so, I understood how important that work was and in 2012 when people weren't really talking about self-care and mental health we were trying to teach these children how do you deal with bad days you know so we started early yeah I mean just working in in the inner cities it's tough right like there's not a lot of funding for social workers or school counselors and you have populations of, you know, school populations of 5,000 kids, right? And you have two social workers. Like, yeah. they can't personally touch every kid. And so it's really tough. And it makes me think of, um, like, last year when Meek put out that song, Trauma. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of said something during, I think, one of his interviews. He was like, our trauma gets overlooked. Like, the inner city kids, their trauma is completely overlooked. There's plenty of kids who are probably suffering from PTSD. Yeah. And it's looked differently. Like, uh, somebody that comes home from war and lost, you know, their, their friend in war, tragically, they get diagnosed. Whereas kids who lo- might lose their best friend, right, the day before, or lose their sister or their cousin, mm-hmm. it's just like go back to school and maybe, you know, somebody will memorialize them with a t-shirt or candles and it's just like, wait, this is really happening yeah. and that's happening every single day. Um, so like with the work that you're doing is like, it's, I mean, it's beyond overdue, yeah. but like the vision for it it's it started with you obviously having a relationship and having some trauma going on with your own personal life Mm -hmm. you want to go into that a little bit yeah so so i had a very unique upbringing yeah i grew up in a single parent home with my father and my older brother my mom left when i was about six and there's a situation that i talk about in the book where there was uh domestic violence that i had witnessed Mm -hmm. and then shortly after that my mom was forced out of the home. Um, in most instances, you know, kids would typically be with their with their mothers. I was raised by my father who suffered from depression for at least 12 years. And so my house was silent at all times unless there was music on. There was no like hellos, how was your days? And we just we didn't talk about feelings. It was it was difficult, especially for me as someone who's like super optimistic and yeah. I was all excited about was life. Was he aware and, of it? Was he aware that he was suffering with depression or? So, n- no. Okay. And I don't think that he was very aware of it until he actually read my book. Okay. Because, and that's a whole nother issue. So, you know, and I don't want to jump around, but for me, um, I, I lived in a very dark space for a long time and, and I would spend time looking in the mirror and not seeing myself physically, 
but trying to figure out who I was and why I was so different and what I needed in order to hold on to that happiness, paying attention to what was going on around me and how I could be different so that I could have a better outcome. But I think in not understanding what your needs are or how other people are experiencing you is because of our own um, cultural generations of trauma and us feeling like we have to be suppressed and we cannot share what we're feeling you have to just keep those emotions to yourself and carry on you know and in in a lot of households there's there's two rules it's what happens in this house stays in this house so nobody's actually going to get the professional help that they need and and children are not opening up to their teachers and their social workers about what's happening Mm -hmm. but then also for parents you know it's you just have to put on a face and keep it moving and things happen and you just don't talk about it and now we're in a beautiful space where our people are seeing that there are these challenges that need to be addressed Mm -hmm. and I'm going to start doing the work on me so that I can break this generational trauma and then help my children heal it it was it was a colleague of mine said something brilliant I never even thought of it till he actually said it he was like when a kid enters uh, school in kindergarten we know they're upset because they cry Right? Mm-hmm. We know that you know they miss their mom because they'll cry about or they'll tell us, right? That kid, when he gets to fifth grade, will have no idea how he feels or how she feels. And when we ask, they'll say, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Because they've never been trained or they've never had to experience it to express themselves like, hey, I'm not having the greatest days. Yeah. It's just not something that happens. So that same kid who came in at kindergarten and was crying, by the time they're in eighth grade, it's like, if they've never had any dialogue about how they feel or had an avenue to express it, you can see where the social emotional piece can just be completely off. Yeah, and it's from not having the experience of knowing that when you share, things can get better. Right. I think that's what the fear is, you know? Like, the fear is how will this information be received by others? But now we're seeing that when you speak and when you release, it's good for you, and sometimes it can help you get out of the situation that you're in if it's necessary. So you said something that was interesting. You said you learned how to self-comfort Mm-hmm. What, what, what does that mean? Self-comfort is, so I say in my book, one example of that is we're taught to cry on the shoulder of someone else. But my tears, all of our tears, fall where? On you. They fall on us. And so the first person that you need to speak to is yourself. Because that is the person you're going to have the most honest conversation with before you call someone else and tell your side of the story. You actually know the whole side and there's no getting around that. So talking to yourself about what you're experiencing, listening to how you're feeling, and then figuring out positive ways to react. So in self-comforting, what we teach to the youth is when you're having a bad day, what do you do? What are your options? And the responses that we'll get is, I'll punch a wall. Um, Some kids will will honestly say they bully others Mm -hmm. um, or they'll fight with their sibling. And then some kids will say, I read a book or I'll write or I'll go walk or I'll take a nap. And so our job at Precious Dreams Foundation is helping them understand that those are the things that you need to hold on to now Mm -hmm. and carry them with you for the rest of your life. Because if I am the person that you rely on for comfort and something happens to me, you'll be lost. Yeah, that's like one of the, one of the phrases that Shadi always says to me. He was like, "You're always going to need other people, but you have yourself." Mm-hmm. Like, so start with yourself. Yeah, start with yourself first. Love yourself first, and it makes everything else easier. 
you always need somebody, but all you got is yourself. That's the that's the phrase. Because at the end of the day, that's all you really have. Because it's not even like you you you. It's no disrespect to your friends and family, but you can't fully rely on another person, mm-hmm. right? I might really need Troy, and he might have every full intention to help me, but he might just not be able to do it, yeah, for whatever reason, right? So it's like at the end of the day, you know, at the very least, you're gonna be there. Yeah. Everybody might not be there geographically. They just it just might be a situation where they might have all the great intentions in the world to be there, but they they just can't do it for yeah. you. So I think that that's as powerful. To, it's like Michael Jackson said, "Man in the mirror," right? Like yeah. you gotta look at the man in the mirror, the first. woman in the mirror first. So like, when did you become into that realization as far as to say, okay, I want to? Well, not even but we wanted to help kids because obviously, you know, you, you realized, you know, as far as your upbringing and stuff like that, like, did you do that in your teenage years? Did you do that, like, as you graduated, well, as you um, left college? Like, at what point did you start to realize, like, maybe my upbringing wasn't the most beneficial and I, you know, kind of have to look at some things? I actually didn't really think about it until I started the nonprofit. Unless you're comparing your situation to others, you don't really understand as a child what you should or shouldn't have. And so, you know, yeah, there were days where I was hungry, but I didn't realize that that wasn't normal until I got older and started having conversations with <laughs> other people, you know? like, yeah. it, And it's crazy because when I started the organization, in listening closely to the, the youth tell their stories, I started thinking to myself and I was like, wow, I didn't have AC or he either like you know yeah. and i was like that wasn't that wasn't normal you know? nice <laughs> it's crazy it's crazy that you say that because i was telling somebody to, um like a few months ago like i went to um one of my good friends is indian and um he had a wedding and anybody that's familiar with indian weddings it's like a whole week thing like it's like four days celebration and it was like a whole thing and they um they did a movie and it was it was really dope right but seeing that seeing the um the tradition that they had as a as as a people and just seeing the love that they have for each other it was like it really made me think like growing up a lot of times you see you, we're so used to like relationships being dysfunctional you don't realize yeah. that it's dysfunctional because yeah. you just think that that's normal <laughs> like, that's you, like, I mean you're you in it nope. yeah, yeah you know exactly you might be in it yourself and it's like after a few bad relationships and you see all your friends in that type of relationship so you're thinking yeah you know, curse out here and fight. It's argument. not that bad. <laughs> yeah, you get cheated right? on. It's normal. Like that's not really nothing to really bad an eye at. And then you see something from a totally different perspective, and you're like, wait, this is not normal. Like, right. you know what I'm like it's this is the totally same not reason why you know people like you and I provide opportunities for youth. Yeah. Because a lot of people will never leave the neighborhood that they're comfortable in because they haven't experienced anything right. else. So they don't know that they should be traveling or they don't know what can be offered if they leave this job and, you know, try something yeah. new. It's like, I call it, we're like the real exposure programs. Like we are exposing them to things they've never seen. We just took some kids to uh, the Wells Fargo trading desk. Like I've never been there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like a kid at 14, I can imagine what that's going to do for his future. Yeah. Or when we, we, we took him down to Morgan Stanley's trading desk, it's like, I actually knew the guy who was there. I'm like, I didn't even know you worked here. You know what I'm saying? And like a kid at 14, again, seeing that, who knows what that'll lead to him in the world of finance or just in any career yeah. that he, he pursues. You know what I mean? So that exposure is it, so important. Yeah. And like, yeah, like we said the other day, like we, we um, did an episode, the last episode in Africa, but it was important that I took the kids uh, to the Brooklyn Museum to see the ancient Egypt, ancient Egypt 
uh, exhibit because it was like they need to know this history, right? Yeah. I don't know if this is going to be covered in social studies. I can't risk the fact that it might not be, so let's give it to them now. Mm-hmm. And what they'll do with it, who knows? Yeah. You know? But the exposure is the, is the key piece. Yeah. Nah, for sure. So, all right, we're going to talk about the book, but you, you said something interesting as far as how to pro- you promoted your book and you went on a book tour, mm-hmm. and you went to um, Barnes & Nobles in, I think, L.A. and New York, and I asked you, I'm like, how did you get Barnes & Noble? That's a big deal. Like, how did you get a book tour on Barnes & Noble? So can you talk about how you did that? Yeah, so I will say with New York Pride, this city, <laughs> <laughs> if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. That's and I learned how to hustle at such a young age that when this book was coming out, I remember seeing a photo of the author Cleo Wade. Uh, I saw a photo of her online. She had her book release at Barnes and Noble, and there was an image of her with the Barnes and Noble logo in the back. And I was like, that's what I want when I release this book. I want to do it at Barnes and Noble. I'd never written a book before. I had about like 10,000 followers. I'm running a grassroots organization. I put together a kit for the book. Um, and I reached out to all of the Barnes and Nobles in New York, but I started with like the other boroughs outside of Manhattan. So I started with Brooklyn, just trying to see if they would give me a shot. Um, and I kept getting turned down. And then every time I got turned down from a manager, cause I would email and then I would call, um, I would add something new to the next email. And so in conversations, they would ask, How, what is the value that you would bring to the store? What is your following like? Who, how many people would you expect to come out for you? Now, if you're from New York and you have a big family and you know you can get 75 to 100 people to come out to your book signing, you can get a book signing at Barnes & Noble because in that particular city, you have a big following. And most people don't understand that. They think that you have to be with this big publishing house. A thousand people will come out. No. So I yeah. ended up, that's a lot of thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that, but they probably thinking. Sounds like right. a concert line. Yeah, you, you don't. You know, yeah. Barnes, Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue, which is the place where I actually hosted my, my book release, they can only hold 125 people upstairs. So they want to know that if they purchase 125 books, that you will sell them on that day for your release. That's what they do, they purchase it? Yes, and so if you don't have 125 people, you actually have to buy back the books. You have to pay the difference. It's like a bar guarantee. Yeah, so so like they're buying them, you're signing them, and they're like, all right, whatever is left over, that's on you. It's it's just like a bar guarantee, same thing. Yeah, which most people don't know about, you know? Like just get 125 people in the room and you can do a book signing at Barnes & Noble. Another gym. Good to know. Another gym. Another gym. <laughs> All right. So the book, you, you got some you got some some big names in the book that 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 um contributed. Two in particular I want to talk about. ASAP Ferg. Shout out to ASAP Ferg. ASAP Rocky, I believe they just released him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um Thankfully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully that gets resolved. Um so ASAP Ferg, he that that was an interesting story. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in the book, at the beginning of every chapter, there's a small excerpt from not just celebrities, but people who have been guest speakers for the Precious Dreams Foundation. And they tell a small part of the adversity that they experienced in their teens. And then I just elaborate on that. And so I was talking to Ferg about this book and explaining, you know, some of the different people that shared like Miguel and Gary Vee. And he was like, well, you know, is there still space in the book to share? Because I would love to talk about things that I've gone through. And at him being a friend of mine, we never oh, you, spoke you know, you about know him personally. Yes. How did you, how you know? Him? Um, how did how did we meet? 
Madison Square Garden. Okay. We met, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. Like probably seventy five percent of my contacts. All signs point back. Madison Square Garden. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. Um, but you you don't talk about your teen years with people that you're not very close to. You know, you usually talk about business. You know, present present things that are important. And so we didn't dive into it but he ended up texting it which is probably the the form of communication that he felt most comfortable with and he sent me the piece that's exactly in the book it's written about the loss that he that he had as a child losing his father losing his grandmother losing his cousin losing all of these people in a very short amount of time and how it led to him suffering from depression yeah, that's why I said like another inner city kid that it, there's things are happening mm-hmm. every day and it's just like, all right, well, move on. Yeah. Go back to school tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just completely overlooked. Yeah, shout out to Asaph Ferg and then um, Gary V. So you talking about Gary V? Yeah. Gary V is one of my favorite people in this world. Um, a lot of times people ask, is he really like that in person? <laughs> and he is. He, he came to do a talk for 50 homeless youth in New York City. He didn't get paid for it. Um, He had a meeting after, so we were working with a short deadline. He had to do one hour appearance, and he ended up canceling his dinner that he was supposed to do after to stay because so many kids had questions and they wanted to take pictures. They knew who he was? Some of them did and some of them didn't. But I will say, and this caught me off guard, Gary talked to those kids the same way he talks to adults on his social media. He was cursing at them. He was like, your problems don't matter. I was in the back of the room just shaking my head. Like, I was so afraid. I'm like, we're going to lose this. We're going to lose our partnership with DHS after this. Um, Luckily, the kids loved him. So it went really well. That's dope. And then I, I read, I seen something on your Instagram. I think it was on your Instagram where you you emailed him, and he said email me originally when you met him, and you emailed him. He never responded. Then you emailed him again. So I DM'd Gary V, okay. and I asked him to come out and speak to the homeless youth at Precious Dreams. And he didn't respond right away. So I DM'd him again. And he said, yeah, send me the information via email. So he gave me his email. I emailed, didn't reply. I emailed again, (laughs) he didn't reply. So I went back to the first form of communication and I DM'd him and said, hey, I've been sending those emails. Are you still interested? And he said, send another email, we'll get back to you. I sent a third email and his assistant replied and we ended up setting it up and he came out and spoke for free. So Yeah, I saw when he said yeah. that and he what he said was he said that most people would have stopped after the first email. Mm-hmm. The fact that you sent three emails like cause you know he's just busy and he got a lot going on, so he didn't see it. And, you know, he tries to answer as many emails as he can, but it's difficult. But the fact that you actually were persistent. Yeah. And that's one of the, the, the keys with any level of success in businesses. You have to be persistent. Um, so especially I, with running a nonprofit, you have to be yeah. persistent because that is the only way to thrive. And I am serving a population of youth who are often unnoticed and unheard because they don't have the platforms to tell their stories. And so they're counting on me to go out there into the world and share why it's so important for us to pay attention and to give to them. You know, like these kids would never have access to Gary Vee if I didn't go so hard. So I'm never doing it for me. I'm just always thinking of the impact. Like a person like Gary Vee, if he can get all these people to to retweet and to share his videos, imagine if how the, imagine how those words would inspire our city's most vulnerable youth. 
Yeah. One, of the, one of the things that we're involved in, I know you're involved with too, is um, homeless outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were supposed to do something, um, but you're doing it, you're working with Complex to do something in, in, that, in that avenue? So Precious Dreams actually serves foster and homeless youth. Okay. So we're partnered with DHS in New York City. We have local chapters in South Florida, Baltimore, and Los Angeles. So if anybody wants to volunteer or give in those cities, um, preciousdreamsfoundation.com. Um, but yeah, so we've been working with homeless youth for a very long time. And through the programming that I've developed for Precious Dreams Foundation, it's been noticed by other corporations who have brought me in to do consulting to mm-hmm. help them develop similar programming to reach their target audience and help them create philanthropic divisions. And Complex is one of those companies. Uh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, we want to thank you for coming on. Shout out to Complex. We need to be on that <laughs> Complex yeah. car. Com- Complex Community, which is the new initiative that we created. Shout that out to Complex Community. Complex Most community. people will find out about. We need to be on that. Yes. Shout yeah. out to Gary V. We need Gary V on the podcast. We we, on the we're, podcast. we're putting it out we'll there. We'll tag Gary v, we're we putting need, it out we there. We need you, bro. Yeah. Um, Nicole, welcome to Alumni. Uh, yes, I'm an alumni now. I get yeah, a sticker. Followers going up. That's a fact. That's a fact. So, Troy. Some housekeeping items? Yeah, patreon.com backslash earn your leisure. That's our proud to pay program. Thank you for everybody who's supporting that. We got some new members this week. Uh, John, Jake, and Shadia. Um, thank you. Um, like we said, we have five tiers for you to join at. Feel free to enter at any level. I want to give a shout out to Crystal. We spoke, she DM'd us from Japan, but we actually spoke when she was in South Korea. So shout out to her. We had a great conversation. And shout out to Brenda and um, Crystal from the Bay Area. Um, we're trying to work out some things in the Bay Area to, 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 Bay. to do something out there real soon. So shout out to Crystal, um, who's trying to connect some dots. And again, Brenda, who's she's been putting us in contact with a number of people. So shout out to her. Yeah, nah, shout out to, shout out to Oakland. Hopefully we'll be out there very soon. Um, but as I said earlier, Houston, Texas. That's up next. That's next. We, we, we was in L.A. Every, we were picking up momentum. L.A. was dope. Brooklyn was tremendous. It was like a rapper's in-store. Like, there was too many people in the venue, so we had the whole street flooded. Like, That's incredible. Cops came, like, what's yeah. going on? They're like, an NBA player here. Just chill out. <laughs> and then Atlanta, Georgia, they had 500 people in Atlanta. Atlanta was crazy. So, Houston, you got a lot of pressure on you. But uh, yeah. we're looking forward to touching Houston and and EYL University. We're not going to talk about everything. It's not secret right now. Yeah. But <laughs> we, we, we'll be rolling out. We Just remember that. Remember EYL University because that's something that we're very excited about. Yeah. YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe, like, know, comment. Guys listen, a lot of y'all guys listen on audio, which is great. We need to get number one on the iTunes chart, but YouTube as well. For sure. sure. And we're going to have bonus content on YouTube, too. Yeah. So YouTube is another way to consume the content, but we're going to have actually more content on YouTube. My book tip of this of this week is Nicole's book. So you're the author. Every week I give a book tip. So I'm going to let you give the book tip um, and explain your book, talk about your book. And uh, yeah. I was actually just listening to you speak, and I was going to follow that up with a tip for you guys. And... It's incredible seeing how this podcast is growing, but it's a reflection of what you're doing for others. And it's showing you that people are hungry for this information. So my tip, which is not necessarily a book tip, but I'm an author giving the tip, 
is legacy. Legacy is never about you. It is about how people experience you and what you can provide to others. And as you guys grow with the podcast, I want you to remember that all of the information that you're sharing, if it's growing, it's because it's helping people. And so I think in starting a nonprofit and starting any business and in thinking about legacy, just think about how you can serve this world and what you can provide. We, we actually put that on our merch, legacy, legacy, legacy. Yeah, that's, that's what Troy said all the yeah. time. He was like, you can't, um, what do you say? You I, can't I'm a, I, I was, because when people look at students, I always tell them from a population, right? Like the principal, yeah, he's in charge of the school, but the students are the real bosses, right? Like those are the legacy writers. Yeah. When I'm gone, they'll be able to tell how I made them feel. Yeah, that spark. They, you know what I mean? They won't remember the things I'll say, but they'll remember how I made them feel. So like, those are our legacy writers. Like the people we encounter, they write our legacy. They'll be able to tell everything about us when we're gone. And each person will have a different perspective, mm-hmm. which makes it its own novel, its own book. Like yeah. they are writing our book for us. We can't write it for ourselves. You know what I'm saying? So no, like, that's a fact. And yeah. I, somebody asked me, I did an interview one time, and they're like, um, how do you want to be remembered? Or like, what do you want your legacy to be? And I'm like, it's not up to me. My, my, my job is just to do the work on, on earth. Yeah. How I'm viewed is not up to me. That's up, to, that's up to the public. That's yeah. up to the people that know me, my friends, my family. Hopefully, I'm viewed in a good manner, but that's not up to me. You can't worry about that. You just got to do the best job that you possibly can, and then other people, like you said, is going to write your story. Even if you write your own story, your story is going to be written by other people a yeah. lot more than you write your own exactly. story. Right. So. Everybody's going to have one, right? So like every student that we encounter, every person we encounter, that's 10,000 chapters. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They so got every, their own experience. Everybody has their own one. But speaking of the book, 10,000 chapters. So can we talk about your book? Yes. 17 chapters. <laughs> <laughs> no, 23 chapters. Keep saying 17. Okay. 23 chapters. Yeah. Okay. Everything a Band-Aid can't fix, right? Yes. And what's it about? It is a self-help book for teens. It is touching on all of the social and emotional issues that they are dealing with on a daily basis from bullying to peer pressure to family issues because parents aren't perfect they are people and um that takes a lot to discover yeah yeah (laughs) it does um and just how to use their voice and how to stand out in this world that's dope how can people contact you how can they get information on your um charity how can they what's your social media handles all that instagram is at nicole russell uh you can find the book at target walmart um or nicolerussell.com and preciousdreamsfoundation.com if anybody here is not considering starting a nonprofit, but is in the in the um in the mood to give, please log online and make a donation. It only costs $25 to sponsor a foster or homeless child with the experience of a comfort drop in a comfort bag full of brand new comfort items for bedtime. I'm on it. There you have it. There <laughs> you have it. Um, so, yes, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for listening, and we will be back next week. Peace. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.